we begin with the 21st verse of the 15th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, O son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight. For thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Last week was a momentous occasion as we welcomed Lydia and Noel into the body of Christ here at Lakewood Anglican. Many of you were here. We welcomed her, we welcomed them, rather, into the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And as part of that service, we declare with Anglicans who have declared, probably going back even before the Book of Common Prayer, that we're all dead in our sins and trespasses. Our Savior Jesus Christ said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then we continue to say, he commissioned the church to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's as much of the prayer book is, quotes directly from Scripture, Ephesians 2.1, John 3.5, and of course the Great Commission that's found in the other Gospels. And we see in today's readings that the heart of God is for all people. The heart of God is for everyone who he's created. I'm always astounded at how providential the lectionary readings of the church can be. You know, we don't just sing that word, O Christ, the word incarnate, a wisdom from on high, our chart and compass, but we truly believe it to be because it speaks into our lives, into our pains, into our hurts, into the hurts of our nation, into the hurts of all people. And today's texts are no exception. I I don't think that it's any coincidence that our Lord places these readings before us here after a week of division, of hatred, 
of the worst of humanity being reported in the news. I don't know about you, but as I scrolled through my Facebook feed this week and looked at some of the sites that I frequent, my heart was continually broken just by what God's people can do to each other and what God's people can say about each other. God clearly condemns any and all racists' beliefs. He condemns the idea of intrinsic superiority. He condemns the idea that one people or one ethnicity is superior to another. And there is nothing more disgusting that flies in the face of the gospel than racism, in my opinion. Because racism puts forth the lie that somehow God's creatures are not all created equal. And we know, just going back to last week's baptism, that indeed we all stand equal before the Lord of equal deserving in penalty and equal in God's love to save us from that penalty of death. Again, Romans 1, 18 through 20 that we read yesterday, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Boy, we see that, don't we, on display in our lives, in our country's life. Yet, yet, all bear the image of God however marred all are created in the likeness of God. Genesis 9, 5, and 6, God commands his people, from this fellow man I require a reckoning of life for a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And what's the rationale for that? For God has made man in his image. For God has made man in his image. All people stand naturally worthy of condemnation and God's wrath, and all people stand naturally in need of a Savior in God's eyes. For all people are loved that much, even though it's hard for us to see sometimes. Sometimes it's hard for us to see that in ourselves. We get a unique insight into God's view on who it is that is his chosen people, who it is that God desires to save and incorporate into his covenant. In our first reading, Isaiah 56, I invite you to open with me to it if you have your Bibles with you. Verses 1 and 2 read thus, Thus the Lord says, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, and who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. God makes it clear that justice and righteousness are the outgrowth of salvation. Justice and righteousness are the outgrowth of salvation. That means that they're the response that comes from the fact that God reaches first out to us and saves us. It's God who must deliver all people 
and in his eyes, the person who repents and turns to him, no matter what his origin, no matter what his background, no matter what his prior belief, is saved and is called to be an agent of justice and righteousness. The one true God was often described in the Old Testament as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is true. But the title was too often taken by God's Old Testament people as proscriptive and not descriptive. What do I mean by that? It's, take it, it's too often taken as proscriptive as if God is their own national God rather than being descriptive, as, which is to say that God is their God because they believe in him and is to be everyone's God. Do you see the difference? He makes this clear, our Lord does, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, where he says, For the Lord your God, speaking of himself, is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the almighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes judgment, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. His love is for all men, all groups, all peoples. Think about how hard it would have been in Isaiah's day for them to hear this message. They had been exiled, forcibly removed from their land, tortured in some cases, their families split up. They had been taken away into a foreign country, and yet, what does God say to them? Verse 3, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and they shall not be cut off. He continues to speak of the foreigners and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and bless his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. To see, God doesn't just call all people, but he specifically calls those who are outcasts, those who are our enemies to himself. And that's hard sometimes for us to deal with as human beings. We want to see it as us and them. But God says, no, it's all. And none is worthless. And none is beyond redemption. None is beyond salvation. That's exactly what we see happening now in the gospel passage, where Jesus illustrates this point dramatically to his followers with the Canaanite woman. What's significant about the Canaanite woman? Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, or look at the sheet that has the gospel passage on it. 
Where is Jesus at this point in his ministry? Physically, geographically, where is he? I mean, the obvious answer, right, is Tyre and Sidon. But what's that mean? What's that mean to us? Does it mean anything? Tyre and Sidon? Is this Jewish lands? No, these are actually pagan lands. These are foreigners. Jesus is about to go into foreign lands. And behold, verse 22 tells us, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now that might not make anything to you, any sense to you or me here in the 21st century, but the word that Matthew uses here is actually very fascinating. He calls this woman a Gentile. He calls this woman a Syrophoenician, like the Gospel of Mark. No, what does Matthew call this woman? Yeah, a Canaanite woman. A Cananiah. A Cananiah. He uses to describe her. This doesn't fall hard on us, but to anybody in the first century looking at this text, this was almost a racial slur. This was almost a racial slur to call her a Canaanite. Why? Who are the Canaanites? They're enemy of the Jewish people. If you go back and you, you know, Google Bible Canaanites or go back in the old way and look at your concordance and take a look at where the word Canaanite appears in the Old Testament, it's never good. It's never associated with people who love God or help his people. In fact, they're people that are driven out. And Matthew specifically describes her as a Canaanite woman, as opposed to Mark, who describes her as the more modern first century, more first century politically correct, if you will, word, the Syrophoenician woman. Matthew does this on purpose, I think, because he's making a point here. He's going to set up how the powerful love of Jesus transcends this racial, this cultural, this enemy of Israel divide. We also need to keep in mind that In the prior verses to this text, Jesus has confronted the Pharisees and described them as a people that honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. You see, the, the Pharisees are the closest to the truth. The Pharisees are the closest to understanding the scriptures the way the scriptures are written, and Jesus comes down with the hammer on them because they honor him with their lips that is God, but their hearts are far from him. So Jesus makes an interesting choice here in his response to the Canaanite woman, which maybe that's puzzled you before. Maybe you think Jesus is being a little hard. He's not. He's making a point. Jesus turns to the woman who's crying out to him and says what? First, 
She cries out to him, describes that her daughter is oppressed by a demon. 23, he does not answer her a word. And his disciples came begging him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. Stop right there for a moment. He answers her not a word. And then the disciples act. And how do the disciples act? Do they act out of mercy and love? Do they reach out to this woman? No. They say, she's annoyance. She's a, she's a pest. Get her away, Jesus. We have work to do. Jesus uses this as a teaching moment for his disciples. Then finally, verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What's Jesus saying there? Is he being a jerk? No. He's making a theological point. He's stating a fact. He's saying that he was first sent to the house of Israel because it's through the house of Israel that all are going to come to serve and love the Lord. So he makes a theological fact. And her persistence is beautiful. Look at it. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. The next verse seems even more harsh. Verse 26, and he, that is Jesus, answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But that's only harsh to our ears because we don't see the actual Greek behind this text. You see, in Jesus' day, the Gentiles, those non-Jews, anyone who was a pagan, non-Jew, a Greek, whatever, if you weren't one of God's chosen people, you were considered by many to be a dog. You were to be kicked around, gotten out of the way of, not touched, not even associated with. And Jesus doesn't use that word dog. I actually hate the ESV translation here because it makes it seem like he does. If you dig into the Greek in verse 26, the word is actually kunarois, which doesn't mean dog, but dear pet. Dear pet. Dear pet. And she doesn't take Jesus to be insulting her here, notice. But she responds to him beautifully again and says, yes, Lord, this is verse 27, yet even the dogs, even the dear pets, even those house animals eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus is blown away by this. What persistence, what faith. He turns and he demonstrates to the disciple what faith she has. Verse 28, Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith, be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Instantly. So Jesus teaches his disciples here that 
The gospel indeed comes, must come through him and through God's chosen people, but salvation is for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. And in fact, this woman's faith is elevated above the faith of the Pharisees in the last chapter. We haven't, it's not like we haven't seen this before. Matthew 8, 10, Jesus deals with the centurion, right? Another non-Jew. The centurion's got a paralyzed servant. You remember the story. The centurion comes to Jesus and he says, please come heal my servant, but I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. Just say the word and I shall be healed or he shall be healed. And what happens? But Jesus says to his disciples, truly I tell you, no one in Israel, and no one in Israel have I found such, such faith. Yes, this Canaanite woman is in need of a savior. And Jesus is not going to turn that down. And his disciples are instructed to be humble and have mercy upon her. For she too has been created in God's image and has been marred by politics, by all sorts of evil in his day. I put in the front of your bulletin a quote from St. Cyprian of Jerusalem. And I did that on purpose because I think it deals not just with baptism, but with identities. Look on the front of your bulletin there. You should see the icon of him. He says, describing baptism, when you were stripped, you were anointed with exercised olive oil from the topmost of your hairs of your head to the soles of your feet and became partakers of the good olive tree of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, he's reflecting on the Romans passage, which we're not going to get into today. But in the early church, you were literally stripped down naked for baptism before you were anointed. And there was a powerful symbolism in that. It was that you were putting everything aside to be washed and anointed and brought into Jesus Christ. And so it is, friends, that you and I must strip everything away in the service of Jesus Christ. A white identity, a black identity, a racism or a type of superiority that you might hang on to. These are lies of the world that create divisions among people and among God's people. They take the place of God in people's minds. And he would not have you so devalue yourself. You are a son or a daughter of God, period. Any cause can be made into a God. People have bought into them for centuries. Nationalism, socialism, Sovietism, communism, capitalism, progressivism, monarchism, democracy, statism. I'm not saying that we can't judge these institutions. We can and very well should judge them or these values. And yet, it cannot be the primary way we describe ourselves. You see, our culture makes these things into gods because our culture doesn't know the one true God. And our culture is just going to get more divided and worse as it continues to deviate away from God because it doesn't know Jesus Christ, because it doesn't know any different. 
and because it's wretchedly sinful on top of it. We must clothe ourselves in the charity of Jesus Christ. We can't hate individuals, even if we hate their causes. That's not Christian. God loves the neo-Nazi. That's hard, but it's true. God wants him to repent. God wants him to be part of his kingdom, just as he wants you and I to be part of his kingdom. And even the most vile people are loved by Jesus Christ. And even the most laudable people who are outside of Jesus Christ stand condemned and in need of a savior. There is no room in Christianity for racism. Equally, there is no room in Christianity for the snobby, um, sanctimonious virtue signaling that we see. Oh, I'm not like one of those, we say to ourselves. Oh, that sounds awfully familiar. There's a passage in the Gospels that deals with that too, remember? The publican? Our supreme loyalty has to be to God alone, for he alone is able to judge men's souls. So who is it that you, friend, consider the foreigner? Who is it that you consider the eunuch or the dog in your heart of hearts? Now ask yourself, how does God see that person? Our mission is to be reconcilers. As Jesus reconciled us to God, so we must reconcile all men to him. You know as your priest that I don't tell you how you should vote, how you should protest or counter-protest, how you should lobby or demonstrate. That's not my job. My job is to bring to you the word of God first and foremost and have you think about, reflect upon, and decide how to put into action. But let us come before the throne of God earnestly, friends, and pray for those that are caught up in the politics of hate. For he alone, our Lord, is supreme. He alone is just, worthy, merciful, loving, and good. He commands us to love one another and to pray for our enemies. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do bring before you the brokenness in ourselves, in our community, in our nation. Lord, we bring before you those who hate other people, and we ask that you would deliver them, cause them to repent, let them turn to you. Lord, we ask that you would purge from us anything that's not of you, anything that stands in the way of our identity of being washed in your blood, that we might be reconcilers as you reconciled us to the Father. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.